intelligence community largely said, you know, health, that's not our problem. The health, uh, public health, medical community said, well, don't associate us with intelligence and CIA. And part of what we've got to do better is get all those worlds and professions sort of to work together to prevent what all the experts say could be a worse pandemic next time. Welcome back to the live drop. My name is Mark Valley. My guest is Professor Eric Dahl. He's a former Navy intelligence professional. Now he teaches at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. His most recent book, COVID-19, Intelligence Failure, uh, he talks about how the pandemic was a global failure of intelligence, including not only traditional intelligence, but maybe more importantly, a failure of the system of medical and public health surveillance that's designed to anticipate these threats. Uh, we also talk about some of the useful steps to improve our intelligence and warning about disease threats. Uh, we're still very vulnerable uh, at this moment. And third, he offers some of the lessons that uh, this pandemic can and um, should be used to avoid other types of threats and challenges in the future. We talk about um, a domain awareness gap, sewage surveillance, but also this uh, small organization called the National Center for Medical Intelligence that uh, he believes should be enhanced somewhat to prevent uh, pandemic in the future. Begin transmission now. I'm a former a retired naval intelligence officer for 21 years, but now I'm a professor, a civilian professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Yeah, I think like I said in my email, I was there doing an internship while I was a cadet at West Point. Which is awesome. Yeah, I had no idea. You know, I, I mean, I know your your TV stuff or whatever, you know, a fringe, uh, although you, that was kind of a weird character that you played, I think. But uh, but yeah, I didn't know that background. This is fascinating. The Naval Postgraduate School. I mean, it's all Department of Defense or active duty military. Is that correct? Mostly that's correct. Yeah. It's a school. It's a graduate school, mostly for U.S. military officers, but also allied officers. We have uh, um, military officers from around the world. Uh, we have some senior enlisted uh, and in fact, we also have some programs uh, that I teach in for civilian government uh, officials. So I teach courses on homeland security, intelligence, also for police officers, uh, firefighters, first responders. So we actually do quite a, quite a bit, even though we're certainly not very well known. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, it was in Monterey. It was wonderful. I got to stay in. I, I think I stayed right on campus. There was some bar- there was some bachelor's office yeah. quarters or There's something a nice, like that. We had a nice hotel used to be a uh, back at back in the old days, uh, uh, the Del Monte Hotel, uh, famous old where, you know, the uh, Hollywood stars uh, would come and play. And so that's now sort of the headquarters and also the visiting uh, uh, hotel that guests get to stay at. I, we we didn't get to stay at the Del Monte Hotel. <laughs> maybe not. If you were I had like you were a, a cadet, maybe, I had, maybe not. We had a, there was a few apartments that looked like they were, were probably, they probably weren't even built to code. And nobody knew about them, but um, they were, that's, that's where we, that's where we were staying. Yeah. We've probably torn those down by now. Yeah. I, one of the things I learned when I was there was it was interesting. Whenever I walked through um, like any room, uh, I mean, there were different rooms there. There was one that had like a, like a bank safe door you had to go through to get into. And uh, I mean, I, I don't oh. want to give away any calcified stuff. It was interesting. <laughs> what people would do is every time I walked by somebody's desk, they would do this thing where they hunched over their work. I guess that's kind of the that's know, early, early operations uh, security. <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> well, uh, and, kind of, and we, we certainly do uh, a fair amount of classified uh, work for you know, op- operational research. Is, operations research OR is still a, a, a very 
hot topic uh, at Naval Postgraduate School. But what I do in the department I do, we call it National Security Affairs, and we're we're more an international relations graduate department, helping our students sort of understand the big picture of national security, homeland security, including uh, sort of non-traditional threats such as health threats. That would ordinarily be a really good transition to start talking about your book, but I do want to keep talking about it. You're not ready for it. That's, that's fine. There you go. I, I thought I'd but throw I, it out there. But I do want to keep nailing it. Actually, no, I just wanted to mention that this professor I had was really fascinating. Um, he since passed away. I don't know if you knew him, Professor Wolseley from the OR don't department. Think so. Yeah, he passed away, I think, in 2009 or something like that. But mm. um, I, I just remember kind of the overall lesson of that um, project I was working on. It was sort of working on these kind of predictive models and, you know, decision making for commanders on the battlefield. And um, yeah. I remember the one thing that he told me at the very end he said, in order to know what to do next, you have to know where you want to end up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, you can apply that to a lot of different things, especially I think writing, so. which I've gone into now as well. It's like, wait, I still yeah. remember that one operations research professor saying, <laughs> you've got to know the ending <laughs> or at least have a pretty good idea where you want to be. Well, that that's right. And then uh, before coming here, uh, at, toward the tail end of my active duty career, I taught at the Naval War College, which is in Newport, Rhode Island. And as you may know, the War College system is a little different uh, you know, that's all part of a, a joint professional military education program at the Naval Post Graduate School. And what we do is not that. We are more, we teach more broadly, just as you did OR. We have math, department, physics. Uh, in fact, NPS uh, likes to brag that we have had more astronauts go through our programs than any other school. And you can imagine if the Air Force, the Navy, you know, wants uh, one of its uh, pilots to you know, get a master's or even a PhD uh, in aerospace stuff, they might send them here. Or you're going to probably be getting people from the Space Force once they once they get to be majors and, and so forth. That, that's right. I hope so. And as as you know, you know, oh, sorry, got to close that. We're having, uh, I'm trying to not get external noise here, but we're having a little exercise on base. So I got a, just a little heads up on my computer uh, that we're on, at, on an exercise basis. So I just click that off in case you in case anything like that comes up, you know, when we're... Oh, no, you can leave it on. That's kind of cool. Can you leave it on? Yeah. I want to hear what's going on. <laughs> no, I, I clicked, clicked it off. It may come back. Um, you know, it's just one of these, uh, you know, alert sorts of things. I'm at home, but I'm on my government computer. So those things will pop up. Well, well, I wanted to thank you for sending me your book. Um, I'm mean, glad you got it. Boldly titled COVID-19 Intelligence Failure. And I guess you know, we could talk about that later, but you mentioned there it is. Oh, you have, oh, the actual cover has the, the little co the COVID guy on there. But yeah, it's, I mean, look, I'm not a book reviewer. I'm not an academic, but it, I, it was, I, I really enjoyed it. It was excellent. One of the things I found out about you, like you talked in, early on about the intelligence cycle and you're a former intelligence officer yourself. And um, one of the things I noticed in this book was that um, as I was writing down questions in kind of some of the er earlier chapters, they were... Um, they were being answered almost like in a cyclical manner. <laughs> you know, I, I, would, I was kind of doing my own little intelligence cycle as I was reading your, your book. And your, your product provided. You know, one of the things that I hope this book will do is it'll serve as an introduction to the traditional intelligence world for people in medicine, public health, you know, people who are not uh, studying or wouldn't necessarily uh, know about things like that intelligence cycle. But also, I, I want my book to be an introduction 
to the very extensive medical and public health surveillance and intelligence system in this country and around the world. And most of that is unknown to certainly people in the traditional intelligence world or just just people people in in general. I, I think we need to understand both of those worlds, traditional intelligence and medicine and public health, because they all ended up failing all of us uh, with the, the pandemic. You've written about intelligence and um, surprise. And could you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, that was yeah. kind of prior to this, prior to this book. Right, right. My first book uh, called Intelligence and Surprise Attack. And in that, I tried to answer a question that actually had been bugging me the whole 21 years of my career in naval intelligence. And that question was, how can we do a better job as intelligence officers of preventing and anticipating bad things from happening? Uh, because we see we see it today and, you know, just in recent years, we seem to, to keep getting hit by surprises, by, by things that go wrong, by bad things, whether they're sometimes you know, terrorist attacks. And it was 9-11 in particular that inspired that that book. Um, but you know, all, all sorts of things that keep happening. And we pay, you know, here in America, we've got an $80 billion a year intelligence community. And I used to be a part of it. But, you know, what what can we do better? Uh, and so I've been trying to understand that. Uh, but frankly, during my active duty time, I never had time to think about sort of big picture things like that. I was too busy doing my job, uh, you know, living on aircraft carriers and, and you know, providing intelligence briefs. So after I retired, went back to school, uh, became a, a civilian professor, I got a chance to think about that. And what I came up with is what I think is an understanding, uh, it helps us understand better why it is that so often intelligence fails to help decision makers make better decisions. Uh, and that ultimately is what intelligence is all about, I argue. You know, we like to think intelligence is about, it's about spying, it's about maybe warning people about things. Those are all parts of it. But really, intelligence is all about helping decision makers, policy makers, often they're leaders, but often they're, they're, they're people just like you and me, uh, helping people make better decisions. And in order to do that, sort of the bottom line of my first book was, I found that it's not enough for intelligence just to warn. Not enough just to say, you know, hey, we might have a problem, uh, you know, here in the Pacific uh, as, as World War II is on the horizon. Uh, we need to, to worry about things. Uh, it's not enough in the 1990s for intelligence agencies to warn about international terrorism. That wasn't enough. Obviously, it wasn't enough to prevent 9-11. And what I found that we need is, first of all, much more precise, better, fine-grained tactical intelligence, what in the business we would call tactical intelligence on the threat. And we usually don't have that. But the even more important thing that we need is better understanding about intelligence on the part of people who make decisions. And I call that receptivity. And that mm -hmm. so often is a problem when the people who receive intelligence don't care about it, don't know enough to, to understand it. And I, I found that all the, that those things sort of put together uh, helps make intelligence actionable. I mean, your book kind of goes through all the different organizations. It's, it's this kind of bewildering array of acronyms that you very 
you know, clearly explain and, and then repeat later on in, in the, in the book, <laughs> which, um, which, which kind of nails it down. But I mean, it really seems like you were poised after, right after, you know, writing about surprise and, um, nine 11 to make some comparisons to, um, you know, organizationally we need like, like where the way they created the director of national intelligence, we, mm-hmm. we need something like that. You talked about an enhanced, we can talk about this a little more later, the enhanced, um, uh, what was it? The NCM, NCMI? National Center for Medical Intelligence that most Americans had never heard of. We had one. Right. It was run by a colonel. It was in like the basement of DIA. Maybe not the basement. I made but, that up. But, but. but it was a, a relatively small scale operation. Uh, and, you know, for for those of us, and you know, you know the military from your, your own background, uh, you know, those who know the military in Washington, uh, uh, any organization headed by a colonel isn't really going to be able to make much of a mark that, I mean, certainly uh, on, while I was on active duty, I'd have saluted uh, any colonel that walked by, uh, but it wasn't enough. That's not enough yeah. attention uh, to pay to a really serious problem. Yeah. He needs a couple stripes on his pants to, for people. To, <laughs> or, to... or in the, the Navy, we call a couple of, couple of stars on his, on his collar. Maybe that's right. Oh, yeah. The Navy, Navy doesn't have stripes. They don't wear stripes. No, no. We have stripes on the sleeves. Yeah. I'm, I'm being careful not to bring up the army Navy game from last year. I just want you to know that, but yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned that it was a global failure of of intelligence as well, and I was I was fascinated at all these all these organizations. I mean, Canadians have one. Uh, I forget what it was what was what was called as an interesting acronym. Yeah. Um, Canadians have a. They turns out they have a uh, under their military they have a, a small branch that also looks at health issues. But what I I found when I started looking uh, at the pandemic, uh, and really my puzzle was. How was it possible that the United States and the rest of the world seemed to have been taken by surprise by the pandemic when many experts in the intelligence business and in the medical and public health worlds, many experts had been warning us for years that we faced the risk of a global pandemic. So I sat down to try to figure out, and this was sort of my my COVID shutdown you know, uh, project, uh, you know, lots of people baked bread or, or learned a new skill or whatever. I I decided to write a book and figure this out. And what I, worked I found as a, was... I worked, as a, <laughs> I worked as a contact tracer for the California Department of Health. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did that during COVID. That was my COVID contribution. From, well, um, that is fascinating. Yeah. And, I took a cor- I took like a week-long course at Johns Hopkins wow. in August. And then, yeah, I started in September and went through till February of 2021. Yeah. Wow. Well, well let me ask you then. I mean, that's sure. one of the... The, the findings that I came up with, and, and of course, I, I was talking to you know, medical experts, public health experts, uh, security experts, everybody. Um, uh, and one of the, the really sort of the lessons from the pandemic to me seems to be that we didn't make very good use of contact tracing. You know, the idea, even though we tried, you were, you were part of that effort, which is great. But, you know, to me, it seems as if we all today should, you know, in a perfect world, we should all be carrying around a contact tracing device in our in our phones. And if we come in contact or close contact uh, uh, with somebody uh, who has been exposed or, or has COVID, we should get that, we should get an alert. Uh, but most of us don't. You know, why do you think we never got very far with contact tracing? I think, um, well, I think it, it was... Uh... That's an interesting, that's an interesting question because um, like when I finished, you know, I kind of started writing about like recommendations and so forth. And 
um, you know, one of the, one of the most important things I found in making a call, cause you're trying to collect a lot of information about somebody was immediately trying to establish some kind of trust and, um, rapport. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that has a lot, I, I think the idea that, um, that the department of health wasn't just, wasn't there as a government agency just to enforce things and, um, you know, restrict people from certain things or report them to immigration. I mean, it was important mm-hmm. to kind of communicate yeah. that, that I'm a person that works for the department of health and I'm here to help, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I, I think, I think, you know, a lot of Americans in general are a little bit suspicious when somebody from the government calls them up like, like that, <laughs> yep. you know? So that was probably the first pushback. I mean, as far as the apps and things like that, I think people were still, you know, I was still a little fresh after, um, you know, some of the revelations that maybe personal data was being shared and, you know, Cambridge Analytica and all this stuff. So I think people are, weren't really too quick on using the applications. I mean, a lot of the people who are doing the contract tracing thought, wow, these applications will be great. They're going to save us so much time. People right. are just going to report. But it's funny, people are, are if you look, probably look at anybody's social media, they'll tell you that they have a kid, they'll tell you that they've passed a That's course, right. they'll tell you that they've gotten a new job on LinkedIn. But nobody wants to like post that they're sick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. people are people there's a, like a reluctance to post weakness, I think, or well, report that's, weakness, that's a good point, you know. Yeah. And but as you mentioned, you know, we certainly have had problems with these issues about contact tracing in the past and similar things during the early early days of the AIDS epidemic, for instance. You know, big big debates over uh, whether or not uh, the information about individuals' uh, health should be shared in some way. Can it be shared in an anonymous way? Obviously, that's how you would want it shared. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't want to know whether you have been exposed to to COVID. Um, but I sure would like to know, you know, if I get on a bus or get on an airplane or something like that, you know, I'd like to have an idea that, oh, you know, it turns out that two people on on the same plane with me, uh, you know, have tested positive recently. I might, that might change my decision about either getting on the plane or at least I'll put on a mask or something. And oh, yet, absolutely. Be, because as you say, we have very legitimate concerns about civil liberties, about privacy, uh, in this this country, uh, we just haven't been able to figure out a way around it. Uh, you know, there's got to be a technological way to, to provide the benefits without you know, revealing people's uh, private information in ways that it shouldn't be revealed. But that's just an example of how how intelligence, because I consider that c- contact tracing is a form of intelligence gathering, a form of information gathering, and it's one of the tools that we had and that was used in many ways, but but not used as effectively as it could have been. It, it was in, it was interesting. I mean, you, you didn't really get reported unless you'd taken a test, you know. And I think now with one of the one of the limitations of the home testing is that people aren't being report aren't reporting it. That, that's right, right. Yeah. So, it, but again, that gets down to to surveillance. And you know, one of the things I I learned soon when I got into this, and I, I already knew about this, but I, I wasn't really uh, immersed in it. I, I learned that public health is largely a, an intelligence and surveillance driven uh, profession. Uh, when you talk to public health experts, they'll say, yeah, what we, you know, we depend on data. We've got to have data to then make recommendations about what, what uh, public you know, county health commissioners and others should do. But another thing that I found, though, when I started working on the book, was that when I talked to just about all public health and medical professionals, and those are two very different 
professions. Uh, but when I talked to people on, on those sides of, of this issue, most of them told me, hey, don't, don't call us intelligence collectors. You know, don't, you shouldn't write a book about the intelligence aspects of medicine or public health, because that's not what we do. And they were thinking of the CIA and they were thinking of skullduggery and stuff. Um, but it indicated that, you know, they were a little resistant to being termed intelligence. And then at the same time, when I spoke to people inside the intelligence community, colleagues, friends of mine, uh, intelligence experts, uh, and I asked them about, well, what about public health, uh, about health threats and, and health intelligence? And as we talked about a bit ago, we do have this National Center for Medical Intelligence, which is a fairly small scale operation. But, uh, but when I asked intelligence insiders, almost to a person, they said, well, health is important, but that's not what we do. You know, that's, you know, right. we do great power competition. We do terrorism. We do sort of the big kinetic stuff. And, and so what I was finding was on both sides, uh, people didn't want to sort of cross the aisle to, to work with the other side. The intelligence community largely said, you know, health, that's not our problem. The health, uh, public health, medical community said, well, don't associate us with intelligence and CIA. And part of what we've got to do better is get all those worlds and professions sort of to work together to prevent what all the experts say could be a worse pandemic next time. Yeah, I, I imagine there was a similar struggle maybe during the Cold War for journalists, right? Where you wanted uh, to kind of maintain your, you know, your purity that you're a journalist, that you're not aligned or you're not there to collect information for any, you know, state activity or anything like that. So, yeah, that, that's right. And so that's part of the problem here. You know, when part of the solution needs to be better intelligence on health issues and pandemics. But we have this Condoleezza Rice once called it, called it uh, uh, that Americans uh, have, have an aversion. We're, we're allergic to domestic intelligence. And I think that's sort of bred into the, into the country's being you know, right from the, the start. We didn't want the British uh, uh, trooping uh, into our houses and, and uh, uh, invading our privacy. So we still have that problem. And yet what that ended up meaning was it made the pandemic even worse because it was harder in the first weeks and months of the outbreak, it was harder for the experts to gather the right information they needed to make decisions. Yeah, that was a major challenge. That was a big challenge. You kind of talk about that in your book. I interviewed somebody who was a, kind of an expert on the Stasi, the East German secret police that were, mm, mm. you know, that had kind of comprehensive domestic surveillance going on. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I asked, I said, did they ever use that for the, any of that information for public health reasons? Oh, interesting. And, um, I think once there might have been like one kind of outbreak and they, but no, they, they very, they, they really focused on threats to national security and health, mm -hmm. national health or something that kind of yep. came from within wasn't a security threat. Their threats to them were everything that came from the outside. That, that's right. And of course, you talk, you, know, you talk about like you talk about the securitization of, of, of public health. Right. Could you talk about that a little bit? Like we, we, we first have to kind of identify that it is, a threat to national security. That's right. Uh, in fact, that, that's one of the first chapters in my book is looking at that big question about whether we should consider health, public health, uh, disease as a problem for national security. And there are really good arguments made by many, especially in the, the medical and public health worlds, that you don't want to call these problems, pandemics, diseases, national security problems, 
and sometimes that term is, as, as you mentioned, securitization, you know, that we don't want to do that because when you do that, you tend to then move toward military, traditional national security solutions. You use tools such as surveillance. Uh, you use, you know, hammers uh, to, to attack something that, that really shouldn't be attacked with a hammer. But what I end up concluding in my book is that we've really got to consider pandemics, global health threats as national security problems. We do have to deal with these very important issues about civil liberties and, and about the use of military and intelligence capabilities within the U.S. Uh, but still, as we all know, that the COVID pandemic has killed more Americans than all the wars that we've ever been involved with. You know, back when I was uh, doing the early work on this book, as we remember now, uh, several years ago, COVID was killing more people every couple of weeks than died on 9-11. So we've got to treat it as, as a national security threat. And we've got to realize, as many experts are telling us just today, we're, we're getting more warnings now that the next pandemic could be even worse. And I'm just worried that a couple of years from now, you and I will be talking again uh, about COVID-2 or something like that, or, or the, right. the next uh, health threat or something that we didn't take seriously until it was too late. Yeah, you said we're still very, very vulnerable to what experts say could be an even worse pandemic uh, the next time. Uh, you have some recommendations. We could probably go that, you know, talk about that later on in the conversation. But um, as, as our system exists right now, what are what are these vulnerabilities? I know you talked about kind of a lack of warnings and, you know, a lack of recept receptivity. But um, we, we do have there, – there are some – methods there are some things that are in place right now but and why are we why are they why are they um insufficient mm -hmm. well and we can really look at the two sort of general categories of intelligence first the the traditional national security intelligence world and then medical and public health uh, intelligence and surveillance on the the part of the traditional national security agents the cia fbi nsa and all uh certainly many insiders argue today that the U.S. intelligence community did a really good job. In fact, many uh, experts that I talked to as I was working on my book uh, disagreed with sort of the whole premise of the book. They said that, uh, that the COVID pandemic was, was, we were warned about that. But the problem there is that most of those warnings, essentially all the warnings, were what in the business we would call strategic, big picture warnings, well ahead of time, without any particular threat having arisen yet. So an example that's often cited as, as an example of how the intelligence community did a great job was in early 2019. So before the, the pandemic uh, broke out, the director of national intelligence gave the standard annual testimony on the Hill uh, to the House and Senate committees. Uh, and Dan Coates, the DNI, director of national intelligence, warned that we faced the threat of a global pandemic. Well, and sure enough, within less than a year, uh, it came up. Well, you talked about the you talked about the crimson contagion. Uh, there were a lot of war games that were in twenty eighteen right. urban oh, outbreak, twenty nineteen WHO disease X, Gates and Johns Hopkins war that's game right. in twenty nineteen. I mean, there were there were lots. It, it really is amazing. In fact, uh, even just in the fall of twenty nineteen, 
But those were like war- though. But those were more war- there were some more warnings about you know our, our unpreparedness as a system. They weren't necessarily warnings about a specific disease that was coming. That's absolutely right. Before Pearl Harbor, like listen, we're our, our harbors are vulnerable. We're not going to tell you which one. But, That's right. And right. A- absolutely. And, and those those other those war games were were mostly uh, from public health and medical experts. But just like that warning from the director of national intelligence, those were big picture strategic warnings, not warning about any particular virus or, or disease that had been detected somewhere. And what I have found through my study of this, and in particular with my first book on intelligence and surprise attack, what I found is that decision makers don't take action based on that sort of a broad, general, strategic warning. That presidents aren't going to listen. Even county public health commissioners may not be willing to or able to listen to a warning about something that might happen down the road. Even if you say, as we often hear, you know, it's not a matter of if, but when. Well, okay. But as you can imagine, if if you're a mayor, you're a president, you're, you're any, you're us, you and me, you're worried about things going on today. And, and that's why these warnings, as we've seen in the past, warnings about, about terrorism and even about Al Qaeda and bin Laden before 9-11, they didn't produce the effect of helping our government to try to focus on that problem anymore because we didn't know that there was an actual plot developing, just like we didn't know until right at the end of December 2019 and early weeks of 2020, we didn't know that there was a virus developing in in China that was going to soon circle the world. What we needed was better intelligence and warning on that specific threat. And we didn't have it until it was too late. A specific threat. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned that, um, I think there was this crucial meeting on January 23rd where someone from the intelligence community was briefing President Trump. And I don't know who, what your source was, but you said that they kind of downplayed it. And I imagine I, I don't picture Donald Trump someone as, 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 as alarmist, you know, especially president at the time. So there must have been some, you know, some pressure for him, for her, whoever this person was that was doing the briefing to sort of say, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. What I found and what the, the intelligence community has confirmed uh, is that one of the first briefings to President Trump, and it may have been the first uh, presidential daily brief, the PDB, I'm not sure about that, but uh, the, the, one of the first times that President Trump was briefed about this outbreak developing in, in China was on, I believe, January 23rd. Uh, and as the intelligence community has acknowledged, the briefer didn't make much of it. It it wasn't seen as that big a deal. And yet, then what is really interesting uh, is when, you know, right around uh, that time, sort of in the early days, when, as you say, uh, President Trump talked uh, to the president of China, he was more interested in in that, uh, that, that he was more convinced that there's something going on when he talked to the president of China, and yet he still didn't take action you know, as we remember, it wasn't until mid and late March of 2020 when most of the country started to lock, lock down. We really missed uh, those early weeks and months when we could have done a better job of flattening the curve or, you know, remember that term, yeah. uh, trying to get a better handle on it. You talk about, you, about how, um, you know, we could kind of learn some lessons 
and apply them toward uh, you know climate change, natural disasters. Of course, we're you know we're aware of earthquakes in California, man-made catastrophes. Yep. How, I'm just wondering about your perception of what of, of Balloon Week. And of course, we have to realize that somebody might somebody might be listening to this podcast. You know, some some days from now when when maybe uh, you know we've we've learned. What the heck is going on? But right now, as you and I, I might are dust talking, this off in a time capsule a hundred years from now, they'll find like a zip drive with like, wait, what is? What is that's this? right. I mean, yeah. this is this is amazing. Uh, you know that now it's February of twenty twenty three. But go ahead. There, yeah. there we go. Uh, yep. You know these four four balloons or objects. The the last three of them really not not identified yet. Anyway, you know our national security experts say they're not sure what's 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 going on. Uh, you know I kind of suspect on the one hand, uh, you know, someday we may find it's, it's, you know, Elon Musk or somebody, you know, we're just shooting down some, somebody's uh, balloons or communications, uh, uh, low, low orbit things, or, but it also may be certainly, and this is the concern, you know, that it may turn out that uh, China or, or other actors that, uh, uh, that we are worried about have had a much more, uh, much more intensive surveillance program than we had thought. But, I do think there's a lesson. We don't know the answers to these things, but but what we have found is that our national security apparatus is not as sort of uh, it, it doesn't provide all, all us. seeing. That's yeah. right. There we go. That's the term I was looking for. Um, you know, we uh, we have what we are pretty confident is is pretty good shields and defenses against sort of the kinetic uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, the sorts of threats that we we know about. Um, but but these newer things, as the the commander of U.S. Northern Command has said several times, just recently said we have what he calls a domain awareness gap. Now right. that's a term of art in in the sort of national security and homeland security business. You know, domain awareness means we want to know what's going on all around us to you know out as far as as anybody could reach out and touch us. And what we found is that we don't have as good an understanding of what's going on around us uh, as we had thought. And, and the lesson, and, and I'll get back to you here in a second, but, but the, I think the lesson, uh, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, whatever happens in the next uh, days and weeks and months, you know, may, may answer the questions about these balloons. But no matter what the answer is, we have the same problems, the same uh, intelligence gaps when it comes to many non-traditional threats. And it's a problem that both our public, but also our leaders in this country have an overinflated understanding of how good intelligence is. You know, we all watch uh, movies and TV and, and we see that, you know, Tom Cruise or, or you know, NCIS or, or, you know, the FBI seems to be all seen. We can, we can know anything, you know, on, on television, uh, you know, somebody can, can turn to the uh, you know the the lab expert and say oh, let's let's tune in on, on that uh, 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 surveillance camera on that 7-Eleven across the street and you know they click a few buttons and there we go. Well, we ain't that good. Uh, and as as we found with with the balloons, you know we we don't even know necessarily uh, you know about things that are flying in our airspace uh, until they've been flying around for a while. And yeah. so that's why we need to pay more attention to all sorts of non-traditional threats. So that's really where I, I go with the conclusion of this book, uh, that you know the next global disaster could be another pandemic that's even worse than this one. It could be 
uh, a man-made bioterrorist. Could be some sort of a biological weapon uh, made by a nation state or a terrorist. But it also could be lots of other things that, that we know experts are warning us about. Uh, could be a natural disaster. Uh, it could be you know, super volcanoes, asteroids, all sorts of things. But it also could be artificial intelligence run amok. There are plenty of things to worry about. And there are all sorts of different threats. But one thread that ties them all together is that we've got to have good intelligence. We've got to have good warning. And we've got to have decision makers and leaders who pay attention to those warnings. Because whatever the next threat that comes up, we, we know we'll be getting warnings. We, we generally do a pretty good job of providing these sorts of big picture warnings. The real question is, can we gather that more specific intelligence in time? And will our decision makers be ready to listen when the warnings come about the next global catastrophe? I think that I think some the intelligence community, what they could do is start out with um, start out with predicting some pretty easy stuff for people, you know, hmm. Hmm. like just tell the president, listen, you know, Kansas City's going to win the Super Bowl. I, I, we're just, gonna, I, I, yeah, just start out with like, just start building. Because I was watching, I was watching the Super Bowl, and I realized. I remember when I was younger, and I'm just going to assume you're my age, but yeah, you know, yeah, I think I'm a little older. Yeah, you don't have any gray hair though. It's great. So, <laughs> but I remember they used to remember they used to roll out Jimmy the Greek, sure, oh, yeah, and, he, yeah. and he would tell you the Vegas odds. That's right. That's right. And, I mean, there would be all these like ex quarterbacks and announcers that have been doing it for 40 years and coaches. And then yep. they would bring out Jimmy the Greek from Las Vegas. I don't know if he lived in Las Vegas. I'm assuming he does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, Jimmy the Greek, I remember him. You know, where the money is, here's where people are betting. And I guess that's, that's right. sort of this wisdom of the crowd. That's right. Kind of, you know, predict, predictive yeah. thing yeah. for the most part. But, um, <laughs> we need, we need like a Jimmy the Greek for in the, in the intelligence. <laughs> we need to have that kind of trust of somebody like him. You know? That's true. Well, and, you know, but part of the... He gave you a tip and you made money off of it. And in a way, if we could do that, uh, and certainly then our leaders might develop confidence in their intelligence community or in their public health uh, and, and medical uh, warnings that they receive. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. you know, in the real world, we've seen that work sometimes. Uh, intelligence has had many successes. I, and one of the, the more famous successes of, of recent years... Uh, was the successful finding of Osama bin Laden. And part of the reason for that success, why it ended up ended up in, in a successful outcome with bin Laden killed, found and killed, was because President Obama trusted his advisors. He trusted the intelligence. Uh, so we had that what I call receptivity. He was willing to sort of take the bet when Jimmy the Greek came to him in the Oval Office and said, we think it's it's Bin Laden living in in this compound in Abbottabad. We're not sure, you know. We we put our best men on it, uh, but we still can't tell for sure. But we think it, it's there. And and President Obama said, "Okay, I'm going with Jimmy the Greek because he's he's uh, steered me right the last couple of Super Bowls or the last couple of national security decisions he had to made make." And it turns out that of course Jimmy the Greek was right in that case. Uh, and, and he got and some help. He got some help with the public with a public health issue too, didn't he? Public health issue by by using a by using a kind of public health NGO. He got a little help from them as well. Well, that's actually yeah, a little bit of a of a darker story. That's right about the the search for Bin Laden, uh, and it shows how uh, sometimes uh, the intelligence community will try to 
to tap into medical and public health issues. You know, that one of the, the stories that uh, the U.S. intelligence community did try to confirm that bin Laden was in that house in Abbottabad uh, by a number of ways. Uh, one of those ways was to uh, use a, a real network of visiting nurses, of public health uh, experts uh, in that area to go through that that area, through the through the town, and offer uh, free hepatitis uh, vaccinations. With the idea was to gather a little bit of blood, and because we we know the DNA signature of the the very big Obama, uh, uh, some Bin Laden family, uh, they'd be able to to find out whether somebody in that house uh, was part of that family. It turns out that that the people in that house were, were a little too sharp for that, too too good operation security, and they they turned the uh, uh, the public health folks away. But the bad news is that as we later learned in news reports, the Pakistani authorities arrested the doctor, the real life doctor who oh, had wow. been in charge of that effort and put him in jail. And I think the last I read, he'd been sentenced to 30 years. So step, step one step back for cooperation between that, health that's and right. intelligence, right? But, yeah. but I'll tell you another one of the the techniques that the CIA, uh, this is according to press reporting, but but it looks like it's it's good good information. Or I hope this is what I think it is. Good gouge. I think it is. But go ahead. <laughs> well, but one of the things the CIA thought of trying to do to determine whether Bin Laden was in that house was to get somebody to get a, a little uh, bit of the sewage coming out of that house. Uh, you know, you might call it poop int. You know, we talk about human intelligence, right. human signals intelligence, sig int. So they thought about poop int and try to then be able to determine the DNA signature of whoever was in that house. As best we know, nobody ever did it. I don't know if it's that nobody right. wanted to take a poop stick and try to sneak uh, into the, the sewage system and get that. But of course, sewage surveillance, wastewater surveillance, right. has since the outbreak of COVID-19 become very well known and, and a very well accepted uh, method of detecting outbreaks in a community. It just didn't end up getting used in Abbottabad. Well, it's fascinating how, I mean, there is such a interplay between, you know, health and national security. I mean, on one hand, you can use it, well, we, health, we want to identify health threats, but we also want to identify health threats to important people. I think you had an example from 1959 where there was a certain visitor to the White House who uh, well, might, have, might have had some, might have, there might have been some kind of poop int going on there. Yep. Well, well, that's right. Uh, the uh, the CIA has, for for as long as it's existed, uh, had as part of its mission to track the health of of uh, foreign leaders, especially uh, potential ad- adversaries. Uh, so, uh, when when visitors would come, especially during the Cold War, uh, folks like Khrushchev, uh, uh, you know, would be, would be uh, their health would be analyzed to, to try to determine how they're doing. Uh, and and sometimes we we understand that that uh, uh, poop end might have been used. Uh, at some of those cases. You mentioned that, you know, that was one of your recommendations or that it is already going on, that there is like a global um, wastewater kind of surveillance initiative that's that's happening right now. And that it is it is extremely effective at kind of well, that's right. um, giving warning like that. But you talked about sensors and I'm wondering, are they sensors or are they, is it like a, somebody with, with rubber gloves and a test tube, <laughs> you know, kind of bravely making his way in somewhere. I'm just wondering how that, how that's done technically. You know, I, I have to admit, I, I haven't tried to delve too deep into a sewage surveillance, uh, but it is something that is becoming much more widespread. And it, this is one of those 
those things that seems to be sort of a win-win situation. It's, it is relatively easy and a, a recognized, understood uh, a tool of public health surveillance. Uh, and, and the beauty of it is that it can detect, they can detect very small amounts of, of uh, the COVID-19 virus, for instance, uh, in a community or, or a, a, you know, a subdivision or a school or university's uh, sewage. Uh, and if you see some detection pop up, then what you do is you then apply more, more detailed and more f- focused uh, tools of surveillance, which is traditionally, that's what we do in the national security intelligence business. We have satellites and, and all sorts of other tools uh, to do sort of broad area surveillance. But once you think, okay, I think something over there might be of interest, then you have completely different tools that you use for, for narrower uh, surveillance. And that's what we're now learning to do in the public health world. It seemed like the the kind of basic operational unit, if you want to talk to, if you want to say, was was the count at the county level. But I remember there right. was the California, and like you know, the county had its own had its own website. Obviously, they had numbers you can call for information. They had um, you know resources that provided, and it was the contact tracing was organized um, by the county. But mm-hmm. the state health department also w- was running a little bit of. Um, they're running a little bit of uh, duplication. You know, they had other numbers that you could call. They had they had guidelines that, you know, may or may not have always kind of lined up with with you know the county recommendations. I mean, that right. might have been just to make up for some counties that weren't really providing that much information. I don't really know. I mean, Los Angeles, I mean, L.A. County Health Department is is L.A. County is huge. First of all, so yeah, you know, I can see that's why they um they took a lot of the responsibility for that. Well, but all that is part of the problem. And part of that problem is related to intelligence, surveillance, collating all that data. And we all remember how there wasn't anybody at the national level who was prepared, sort of assigned the job of tracking all this. And for most of us, uh, it ended up being either the media or famously Johns Hopkins University ended up putting up a COVID dashboard with all the information, which was great, but it doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh, it's not a, a good way to run a railroad if you have to wait for some private organization, some some university to do what probably should be a government job. And it just shows how nobody really had the responsibility to track all of this, to track surveillance uh, and infections uh, nationally. And I'm, I'm still not sure that we're all that much better uh, at it today. Yeah. You mentioned, um, I didn't really know about that, that a lot of the, I mean, there are 18 different you know, intelligence collection agencies kind mm-hmm. of, but a lot of them do have their own, like whether, whether it's psychology, behavior, or health information departments as well. Um, one, one that was conspicuously absent was the NSA. I know you did mention something about there was some independent study where they were doing surveillance uh, or satellite photos of the parking lots of hospitals in China mm-hmm. to try to predict, mm-hmm. you know, a rise in activity. But I'm just wondering, what does the what does the NSA contribute in terms mm-hmm. of um, pub- public health as a national security issue? Sure. Well, and you know, certainly part of the book is designed to be able to sort of be a primer for, especially for non-intelligence folks uh, about the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, and as you mentioned. Uh, some parts of our intelligence community were were really sort of leaning out out front uh, in trying to help track the virus, such as what's called NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, 
That's our national agency, one of our 18 national intelligence agencies. Uh, and they're the ones that, that manage and do the analysis of, of satellite images and, and other, uh, other geophysical uh, uh, phenomenon like that. And the NGA actually uh, is very active in supporting non-governmental organizations, uh, disaster relief organizations, providing mapping, surveillance uh, about that. But, but also, of course, as we've seen in recent years, and especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've seen that private satellite imagery companies provide, provide great coverage of these things and in, in really kind of creative ways, such as, for instance, by tracking the number of cars in the parking lots of hospitals in China. You can get a, a pretty good rough idea of how many people are, are sick. But the one of the agencies in the U.S. intelligence community that we don't hear very much about uh, is the one that you mentioned, the National Security Agency, the NSA. Now, the NSA used to be very secretive back in the Cold War, back during my military experience. It was even called, uh, referred to as no such agency, the NSA. Right, right. It's much more public today, public website. Um, and what they do is signals intelligence, which is essentially uh, listening to uh, either communications or some other sorts of signals, some other something else, communications of, of some, some sort. Uh, and they, the NSA hasn't uh, spoken publicly much about what, if anything, uh, they have done concerning health health issues. Uh, and that may be a very good thing because we don't want to reveal uh, to adversaries just what our capabilities are. But the NSA is part of our national intelligence system that it seems to me that it seems should be able to help us understand really key issues such as what was the response of Chinese leadership in the early days of the pandemic? They might even right. be able to help us with issues such as about the origins of the pandemic. You know, that big mystery uh, that we really still don't know, did the pandemic, uh, did COVID-19 really cross from animals to humans at that wet market in Wuhan, or did it have something to do with either of the two Chinese uh, virology uh, 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 laboratories that were located in the Wuhan area. We really don't know. And part of the answer to a question like that probably has to come from our traditional national security and national intelligence organizations. But also part of it has to come from medical and public health experts too. And that's, again, where we've got to have those different worlds work a lot more closely together. You recommend a more national or Central, I mean, you know, as well to have de decentralized autonomy. I, I like your example of the Navy ships as well. We, maybe you could mention that. But, um, sure. you know, you mentioned the need for like a national organization to kind of oversee this in an enhanced um, NC. What was it again? NC. Uh, NCMI. Right. NC, an enhanced N MCMI as well. You know, That's get them right. out of the basement. Let's get them out of the basement. You know. Absolutely. Make the, make the colonel the deputy and bring somebody else on. Well, I, and I do in the book, I do uh, talk about, again, there are a lot of analogies between how we do things and think about things in the intelligence and the national security world. And, and those, some of those methods and approaches can help us uh, in the, the medical and public health world. Just as an example, uh, it's just standard business in, in the military that every unit, every Navy ship, for instance, has to operate, at least in part, on the basis of intelligence warnings, has to know what's going on. But we know that every Navy ship, just like every Army unit out there in the field, uh, they can't all have their own 
uh, independent intelligence system. It's too expensive, don't want to duplicate. Uh, so we have systems by which every one of our military units is able to, to receive intelligence and warning, uh, but that intelligence and warning is usually more centralized on aircraft carriers or on uh, major shore stations. And so it seems to me that what we need to do, well, one step is we've got to elevate the role of the National Center for Medical Intelligence into being a truly national medical intelligence center. The same way after 9-11, one of the primary fixes that we made in this country to try to deal with the problem of international terrorism was the creation of the National Center for Counterterrorism, NCTC, in Washington. Mm -hmm. We don't have one of those for medical and public health uh, intelligence, and we, we've got to have that. But we also then need to make more changes and reforms in the public health and the medical uh, intelligence side. And there have been some, some good steps toward that. We mentioned earlier increased use of sewage surveillance, for instance, but, but also uh, the Biden administration has supported and has announced uh, a new organization called the Center for Forecasting and Outbreaks Analytics. Again, a kind of a mouthful uh, organization, uh, and it's just getting started. But the idea there is to have some central organization. And these things can't just be virtual. You know, you've got to actually have people, you know, in a, in a building uh, work together uh, to try to be able to, to watch what's going on in the, the medical and health uh, security side and to be able to reach out and, and touch counties and states and, and other, other countries about that. So we're, we're having good developments, positive developments. But, but they're not really fully, as we say in the military, not really fully operational yet. And we need to get there. Well, I feel like I should call you Professor Dahl. <laughs> I really enjoyed this please. conversation. It's been like amazingly informative. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the live drop. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking to you. That was my guest, Professor Eric Dahl. His book is COVID-19 Intelligence Failure. You can get it wherever you get your books. This is going to be the last episode for a little bit. I wanted to thank everyone for their support and for uh, checking out the show and some of these recent episodes and keep listening. <laughs>